Father, this morning we begin by way of confession to You that we're unable. Apart from Your grace at work in our lives, we're unwilling to see and receive the truth of who You are and what You've done. We can't. We don't have eyes to see on our own. We don't have the strength to comprehend and to live according to what it is that You've given us here in the text. So we ask for Your grace and mercy, knowing, Lord, that for those who call on that grace and mercy, we're heard by a God who's gracious and merciful to us in Jesus. So show us Christ today, Lord, on the pages of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look for a brief moment at um, start by looking at the history of revival in the life of the church. Okay, so before we get there, though, let me just say a brief word about, I keep saying brief, you're all like, no, it's not going to be brief. Let me say a word about what revival is, okay? And there are quite a few definitions that we could pivot to, and, and all of them are valid in various contexts, right? So Revival has a theological definition as we, as we look, a biblical theological definition as we look across the pages of Scripture. It has a church historical definition, and there's a lot of overlap there as well. So let me, without um, at all disparaging any other definition, let me just say, for the context of this discussion, here's my definition. Here's what I mean here, okay? I'm going to define it as a twofold movement in which two things are happening. Number one, first... The Spirit of God stirs up the people of God with the good news of Jesus. So if you remember from last week, that's what the Spirit does. How, how can you tell that the Spirit of God is active among the people of God? When you walk into a church, when you're among the congregation, when, when you're a part of a church body and you ask the question, where do we see evidences of the Spirit's life here, of the Spirit at work within us? The primary way we see evidence of the Spirit is through Gospel proclamation, right? It's through the cross being put on display. It's, it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus being um, stirred among us. So, so if the, first, the Spirit of God stirs up the people of God with the good news of Jesus to the extent that they're compelled to live according to that gospel. And th- this can manifest itself in various ways, right? Like when we see revival in the life of the church, revival causes a movement of the Spirit in which we understand all these different aspects of gospel so that we start loving each other really well. And so there's just this deep tenderness and love from within the body of Christ. Uh, We start bearing one another's burdens. We start, you you start to see like when a revival breaks out in, in a church amongst God's people, you start to see an increased heart for the poor, for those who are far from Christ, for meeting tangible needs and caring for people well, for racial reconciliation and bringing that down the dividing wall of hostility, right? All these things are gospel implications and the Spirit of God stirs us up to see that, right? But one way that it does that uniquely in the kind of revival that I'm talking about is that it compels us to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world around us, right? So the Spirit of God stirs up the people of God with the good news of Jesus to the extent that we are compelled to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world around us first part. And second, the Spirit uses that gospel proclamation from God's people to stir the hearts of non-believers to come to faith in Christ during a particular 
region, a particular area of time. That's how I would define it. So second then, knowing that that's the definition that we're talking about. And looking across Christian history now, I want to ask what factors have been present when true revival breaks out in this way? What do I mean by true revival? I'm not discrediting moments in which the Spirit appears to be at work in contemporary Christianity in a particular place at all, but but rather I want to just draw a distinction between those moments and times, like the Welsh revival, in which there's this clear demonstrative measurable growth in Christianity in a particular location, right? Um, By way of evangelism in particular. So to be clear, I'm not talking about Christian organizations that hold revivals. I think we should be evangelistic, right? But I'm not talking about holding like revivals where there's a speaker and a band and a gospel presentation and then a claim that through our ministry, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people have come to faith in Christ. While meanwhile, over the course of one year, two years, ten years, there's no tangible change at all in church attendance or uh, culture in that particular area of the world. So apparently most of these tens or hundreds of thousands of Christians are of the secret variety. And again, this is the problem that I have with that kind of um, terminology for revival. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a demonstrable change. Okay, And when we've seen demonstrable change, the Welsh revival always being the, my, my pivot to like, by way of an example, uh, in which I've talked about it a lot, right? But police formed a choir because there was such diminished crime they had nothing else to do, so they sang all the time. The mules didn't obey their masters anymore because their masters used to curse and yell to get them moving, and now they were suddenly kind and gentle, so the mules didn't know what to do. The gospel proclaiming churches filled up to such an extent that they had to offer more and more services in order to include every new Christian. And so, you know, bars in which men from the community would, be, would have become violently drunk just a couple of weeks prior, were now being utilized for public worship daily with fill the singing and actually the preaching of God's word. And when those kinds of moments happen, when it's just very clear that there's been that twofold outpouring of the Spirit that I was talking about earlier, um, and they have in Christian history, they've happened, and they will again. All right. What common features do we find? And I want to submit two. It's not exhaustive. But these two common features are central and we see them in every instance of this kind of revival. We see a a reliance on God in prayer, more on that in a minute, reliance on God in prayer and a renewed focus, a reliance on God in prayer, a renewed focus on passion for, commitment to the diligent preaching of God's word from within the life of the church. Those two things are always present. Why these Why these features? Because they both reflect dependence on God for revival rather than some kind of dependence on us. I mean, it becomes really clear, right, that revival is not going to be about me being clever enough to figure out how to bring a group of people to this point of realizing their need for Jesus. You know, like, it's not going to be about um, us figuring out how to grow the church. It's this Reliance on God in these areas where it's like they tend to be the last places we pivot, like especially prayer. Prayer tends to be the last area that we pivot to because we think it tends to be the last thing that we, that we incorporate in our mission because we tend to think, all right, if I have 20 minutes 
to figure out what I'm going to do here. I'll, I'll do two quick in prayer because then at 18, I got to get to work. Right? That's how we see it. Is that the, I'll just get through the prayer thing and say a brief word because then we got this work to do. We can often do the same thing related to preaching. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that if you look across church history, whenever preaching began to languish, the church began to languish. When, when preaching flourishes, you see revival in, in church history. So in other words, and to place this within the framework of contemporary Christianity, listen, I mean, it's not just this simple, and I'll explain what I mean in a minute. Whenever preaching stops being preaching and starts being opinion pieces on how we should be living our lives or CEO-type speeches on the direction of an organization, those churches tend to stop being churches over time. Like, preaching stops being preaching, so a church stops being a church. And unfortunately, the sentiment against preaching can at times, like, um, cause, cause a kind of cascading effect that makes it popular for churches not to preach. And therefore, what becomes popular is church languishing and fading, you know? And then over time, it's like, the church fades and it's, people are scratching their heads. What happened? I wonder what happened. It's a real problem. But there's also a way to preach the word, but to do so prayerlessly. You know? There's a way to preach the word intellectually, like as an intellectual exercise that never, never extends to the human heart. To do it without a kind of pleading with God to use it, to be present in it, to do a work within it, in us, in our hearts, you know, like to do a work in the heart of the preacher and to do a work in the heart of the hearer as well. We can do this prayerlessly. And in moments of revival, you know, um, there's this realization that we can't do this. So we're driven into prayer. We're driven into God's word. Just by way of invitation to you, we have a prayer meeting immediately following this service. In moments of revival, what do God's people do? There's this stirring of the Spirit to come together and pray. To come and pray often. To raise up in the morning and pray. To pray throughout the day. To pray in the evening. Why? For Christ to be made known in the community around us, amongst our friends and neighbors and coworkers. Join us for prayer after church today. And let's pray for this kind of revival together. But in, because in these moments of revival, like I said, there's this realization, right? We can't do it. There's a realization... And I say this a lot, right? It's language that I repeat at GLC intentionally, but we realize that we can't bring someone from spiritual death to spiritual life any more than we could possibly bring someone from physical death to physical life. We can do neither of those things. God can do both. And so revival pretty obviously isn't going to be created through us engineering certain clever marketing strategies in the church. It's not going to um, happen by way of human effort. There are things that we need to put effort toward. But this is a work of the Spirit. It's going to have to be the church crying out to God to do what only He can do, and then putting our energies and efforts by grace into the means that He's given us for revival, even when those means don't make a lot of sense to us, even when they seem counterintuitive to us, right? So that in the end, God's the one who very obviously gets the glory. It's like, well, it's, it wasn't because of us. Look what we did, you know? We prayed, and we opened the Bible and read it and explained it, right? Okay, so... Um, reliance. We see this kind of reliance is essential for revival in our text. 
Because here, uh, John, the, the apostle, the disciple, is interested in un- unpacking the nature of Christian revival. That's the title for the sermon. Last week, we looked at the nature of Christian confession, what the Christian confession of faith is, how it works itself out from within the, human, within, uh, the Christian life. And this week, we see now how that confession about the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done gives way to revival in the life of the believer and in the lives of those around her or him. Friends, family, neighbors, co-workers. The gospel of Jesus does a work in us. We saw that last week. It does a work in our hearts, yes. But now we see in our text this morning, it does a work through us into the lives of others. And we see, we see that in four stages in the text this morning. Four stages of Christian revival. All of them rooted, I think I'll be able to demonstrate, not in effort. This isn't going to be like, the disciples did X, so we do X. Not an effort, not in, not in um, something that we're able to do, something that we're able to accomplish, but rather through what Jesus accomplishes in us. And so we'll see four stages of Christian revival. You'll also see that um, some of these four stages are going to intentionally mirror some language that we use at GLC to describe disciple-making. So if you pick up this um, card in the lobby, and I would encourage you to do it, and encourage you to read through it, you'll get a sense of the disciple-making pathway at Gospel Life Church. Like, this is how we believe the Scriptures describe disciple-making. And, and so this question, you know, um, how is it that we believe discipleship occurs in the church? Very closely linked with this nature of Christian revival that John wants to show us here. So, all right, so let's start uh, with the first stage. Verses 35 and 36, we see gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation. Uh, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So, okay, so the day prior to this, so last week's text was yesterday in the narrative, okay? So the day prior to this, yesterday in this narrative, John made this confession by way of the Spirit. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now the day after that confession, he's standing with these two disciples and he proclaims again. He confesses again. Behold the Lamb of God. And I talked a little bit about what John likely meant and didn't mean last week, but the message is heard loud and clear. John is saying, this is the chosen one of God. My whole ministry is centered upon, that that my whole purpose in life is to point to and direct to. So he's received this good news that the Christ has come in the person of Jesus. The Spirit, if you remember, has revealed it to him. And the first thing we see occur is his own gospel proclamation to, to others about the truth of who Christ is. In other words, the gospel, when received, is then always, it's always proclaimed. We see this pattern throughout the scriptures. The gospel is received. If you remember how it was received last week, it was received by the Spirit, not because John processed or had this knowledge of Jesus over time that he was watching curiously from the background, but it was the Spirit of God by grace revealing. You know, the Spirit remains on him, and that's, he says in the text that's how he knows that Jesus is the Christ. So when the gospel is received, it's always then proclaimed. It has to be. This is a kind of message that won't sit still in the human heart. The gospel is a message that, in a sense, grows restless in the human heart to escape, to to come out of our mouth. 
This is why the New Testament witness will later proclaim in the book of Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul is not saying here that the work of proclamation saves you. That you can be saved by something you do. You know, that that you're saved by, yeah, it's like 98% faith, grace through faith, but then there's this 2% of proclamation, and once you do that, you're saved. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying, if you, if you have gospel belief, genuine gospel belief, if, if that kind of grace has transformed you, then that confession will not be held secretly while you just live like the rest of the world. I've quoted uh, Luther often in this way. But we have to come back to it again. We have to do a little bit of review here together this morning. I think it will be for our good. This is what Luther meant when he said, we're saved by grace alone, but grace that saves is never alone. Grace that saves is never alone. In other words, we're saved by grace alone, but that grace brings about change. It transforms us. It comes with various entailments or implications. And you know, we talked through that too a couple weeks ago. Gospel implications and what happens when we assume the gospel and focus just on the implications is a generation away from gospel denial, right? So it comes with these implications. And one of those implications is gospel proclamation, which stands at the center of Christian revival. You simply, listen, you can't have Christian revival in any sense apart from the gospel doing a kind of work in the heart. Christ in his spirit the Spirit of God revealing Jesus to us, to our hearts, that brings some kind of change, and in particular, that brings the message outward. We'll come back to this idea in a few verses, so, so hang with me. But there's a reason we have a word-centered ministry at GLC. There's a reason why the, the first part of our path, portion of our pathway is gospel proclaimed. It's the word going forth. You know, um, I've done this thought experiment a lot, at Gospel Life, but I'm going to repeat it again for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it's directly related to the text. Number two, there's a lot of new people at Gospel Life over the course of the last six months that maybe have not had this opportunity to do this thought experiment with us. And number three, uh, when given the opportunity, uh, I'll, I'll use it and to keep performing this experiment together so we can keep it uh, front and center. I'll keep it brief, but again, let's think together. What makes a church a church? You know, so if we were to take away everything this morning, no pews, no coffee, no donuts, no liturgy packets, no guitars, no pianos, no, I don't know what these drums are called, Jake, none of these things, no microphones, no building, well, you might say, well, we, we've been there before, not even a backyard, we're just a group of believers huddled together, what would have to happen in order to make us a church? I mean, eventually someone would have to bring some... Wine, juice, bread, right? Um, so we could observe the Lord's table. We've been commanded to do that. Eventually, we'd have to have some water for baptism. But that's not the first thing that would need to happen for the church to be a church, right? Um, it's not the first mover. For us to be a church, the first thing that would need to happen is someone would need to open the Bible, read it, and explain it to God's people. Like, we need the gospel to be revealed to us so that we can know God so that we can be reconciled to God and Jesus, so that we can see how the good news transforms everything. 
The normative way that God reveals himself to his people is the Spirit of God working through the Word of God to show us Christ. Okay. So the first thing that would need to happen isn't some kind of program. It's where I think we can get things backwards. We trust so much in our own ingenuity that we think, well, the first thing to do when you plant a church is a bunch of programming. The first thing actually that needs to happen isn't a program, but a proclamation of a person. By grace, Christ reveals himself to his followers. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God to bring about spiritual life. And we'll have more to say on this in a minute, but we see this in John the Baptist's proclamation. So the Spirit reveals Jesus to John. John can do nothing else, right? There's just this compelled speech that comes from his mouth. Behold the Lamb of God, like directing people to Jesus. Okay. But now the question becomes, what happens as that gospel proclamation goes forth? So I said, it's the first mover. I think it leads to everything else that we're going to see in the text. But what does it move us to? You know? All right, so here's where we move from gospel proclamation to then secondly, gospel confrontation. Gospel confrontation, verses 37 and 38. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. You see that John has a Greek-speaking audience in mind, to an extent at least, because he keeps translating for them. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So two of John's disciples will talk about their identity or possible identity in just a, a little bit. But they hear John the Baptist say this, and for now, what we know is that they follow Jesus. Just to, to quickly note, this, this word follow throughout John carries two different meanings. It's, it's good to understand. It can mean to follow as a disciple, follows Jesus in particular, like a, a Christian disciple, someone who's following after Jesus in a, in a, teacher to, a disciple to teacher kind of way. And we'll see it used in that way throughout John, okay? But it can also just mean to follow someone in kind of a, general, directional, boring. You know, like, they're going that way. I'm curious, so I'm going to literally follow them. Okay. Uh, so, for instance, um, in chapter 11, Mary and Martha are mourning and uh, the, the death of their brother Lazarus. And there's this part in the text where Mary pops up suddenly and runs out, and, and the text tells us that all the mourners, the Jewish men and women that were there with them crying out, they, they followed her because they thought she's going to the tomb and they don't want her to be alone, so they, they follow her. They're not talking about they're her disciples. It's a curious, where she headed, directional kind of general definition. And, and so, okay, it can have that sense, following someone in a discipleship kind of a way, following someone in a general way. And I'm convinced that John loves to weave different meanings together throughout the book quite intentionally. We're going to see this throughout. He's going to do this all over the place. In fact, where, where this word will at once have both a literal, normal, kind of general meaning, kind of mundane, it makes sense from within the context of the narrative, but then also a deeper, more symbolic meaning, uh, in fact. Like, simultaneously, both of those things are happening. He wants to say something more than what he's actually saying. And I think that's happening. We see that kind of double meaning here in which I think at least right now, they haven't been formally brought in as disciples of Jesus yet. They heard John's proclamation. And so they follow him. They want to see where he's going. They want to see what he does next. Follow him. 
they've attached themselves to him here in a more of a directional or normal kind of way, helps describe the flow of the narrative. At the same time, I think John is absolutely saying something about Christian discipleship here. But what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. And we see that in Jesus' question. He turns and asks, what are you seeking? And, and again, uh, there's so much depth to John. This is why it's taking us so many weeks to get through chapter 1. There's, there's a lot more bound up with this question for the author than we realize. Both because, first of all, Jesus already knows what they're seeking. He's not asking this merely to like glean in further information. He discerns their hearts. But second, okay, so if he's not gleaning information, is he just making small talk? No. Um, he asks this question very intentionally. He has a purpose for asking. It's less about giving him information and more to demonstrate something about what it means to follow him. What does it mean to follow Christ? And here's why I think he asks it. Here's why I think John includes the detail. He wants his followers to see and understand that the gospel, when it's proclaimed, immediately confronts. Confronts our sinful hearts. We've seen already in chapter 1, our hearts are unreliable guides because our sinful nature will have desires that are completely out of step with God's desires. And even where we have desires that are um, evidence of the reality that we've been created as image bearers, like they're good desires, and we put them before God, they become our ultimate desires and they, and they corrupt us, right? And so our desires always lead us to ruin apart from God. So when God's good news is proclaimed, it ushers in a confrontation with the human heart. It confronts sin. Carson elaborates further, really helpful. He says, it appears that the evangelist, that's how New Testament scholars refer to John, the author, because he's writing evangelistically, spiritually seeking Greeks and Jews, right? So he says, it appears that the evangelist is writing on two levels. The question makes sense as a straightforward narrative. Jesus asks the two men who are following him to articulate what is on their minds. But the evangelist wants his readers to reflect on a deeper question. And again, we're going to see this so often in John. The evangelist wants his readers to reflect on a deeper question. The Logos Messiah confronts those who make any show of beginning to follow him and demands that they articulate what they really want in life. What are you seeking? What do you really want? What's your intention? In other words, the confrontation can often look like, do you want Jesus because of the stuff he offers you, but not because of him? Are you seeking a means of religiosity by, by coming to Christian churches and involving yourselves there? In which maybe... Jesus can be the kind of teacher that gives you the ability to be at the center of your own life and you're this good person and everybody else isn't. Are you seeking him out because you think he's the key to some kind of health or wealth or prosperity? And as we, you know, asked our men at the men's retreat a few weeks ago, in a lot of ways the question is, what's your idea of the good life? What are you after? Because the gospel likely confronts those realities head on for us. As it will in the lives of the disciples throughout the narrative's Moving forward, so these disciples in particular hear this question. They can't answer it on its face, so they, they just ask him, where are you staying? But to back up a bit, this is not to say, and I want to be really clear before we move on, the point of this confrontation, it's not to say that you have to have immediate pure intentions as you begin to follow Jesus. 
Because if you wait for like pure intentions, okay, I got to get everything, I got to get my house in order before I come to Jesus. You know, um, you'll wait forever. You'll never have your house in order, right? The, the good news in the scripture is not Jesus plus your good intentions in wanting him is what saves you. Like, if, that if you work up intentions that are pure enough or righteous enough, you'll be granted some kind of reward. But that rather, Jesus so confronts your sinful intentions that you realize your deep need of him. Like in this confrontation, we're just shown our sin and we're shown we need Christ. We need him. We need him to purify us because we can't do that on our own. We can't clean ourselves up before we come to him. We need him to do that for us. So there's this gospel confrontation. It confronts us of our sin. It's proclaimed to the human heart. It confronts us of our sin. We see our deep need for him. We see what we're seeking is out of line with what he wants. And we see that now, okay, so... um, See in verse 39, we move from gospel proclamation to gospel invitation. We see that Jesus doesn't just leave us in that confrontation. He doesn't just, what are you seeking? Okay, you see now that you're so sinful that you stand apart from me? This isn't going to work. But rather, we go from this confrontation to an invitation into something else. He says to them, come and you will see. Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Okay, so the text is really full of double meanings, because I'd argue that just like Carson mentions related to the question that Jesus asks, what are you seeking? I think the same thing is happening here with the come and see language in John. We see a theme. On one level, it just makes sense in terms of the events that we're reading about. They ask him where he's staying. He says, oh, come and I'll show you. Come and see. But then we get a little deeper into John and we see Jesus' disciples and other people actually repeat these words to those who don't know him. Jesus says it to his disciples. But now these words are repeated. The same gospel that invites them is now being proclaimed by, by his followers in a way that invites others to come and see. So we'll see it in our text next week. Philip comes to Nathaniel, who's super skeptical of Jesus. Jesus has just told the disciples to come and see one section earlier. And now Philip comes to Nathaniel. Nathaniel's super skeptical, and he just says, come and see. We'll see it in chapter 4 when Jesus has this discussion with another skeptic who is herself an outcast in her community, the woman at the well. And after time with Jesus, in which she sees his heart, he gives her an invitation, a gospel invitation to living water. And she runs and tells her friends and neighbors and coworkers, come and see. Sorry, she, she runs and really tells the community. I don't know about friends, people that cast her out. She runs and says to people, some people who even despised her, she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Come and see. All right, more on that next week, though. But, but for our purposes, we see this twofold work of the gospel. Because on one level, yes, it confronts us. You know, it really does. It confronts our sinful hearts. And you know what? As Christians, that's not going to really stop. Okay, so what I mean is, As we read the word as Christians, we continue to be confronted with the word. You know, we're faced with things in the word that we often don't want to hear, that that, that don't jive with our surrounding world, that make us really uncomfortable. 
that we don't understand, that don't land with us in a certain kind of way, or that we know will make us look like fools in a culture if we say, I believe that and proclaim it, you know? So it confronts us. Gospel confrontation is unavoidable in that sense, but the gospel doesn't just confront. It also, by grace, invites, and it invites us specifically to see the heart of Jesus for us in those things, even when we don't understand, even when it doesn't land with us. We see the heart of Christ for us, for the world, for his people. It invites us to see Jesus for ourselves, to hear the good news of who he is and what he's done that we might believe. Now let me just say, by way of application on this point a little bit, I've been surprised, you know, uh, over the last couple of decades to hear certain segments of what's been known as like the missional church movement, part of which I really identify with, throw some shade. There's, there's a lot of shade that gets thrown at preaching. That doesn't surprise me anymore. It's pretty common. But in particular, it's, it's like I've been surprised to see is criticism specifically mentions come and see as a model that Christians shouldn't adopt in the life of the church. Like, it's almost like the words come and see from within the missional church. If you ever read a book on like evangelism, sometimes you'll read, it, it can be confusing. You'll read come and see almost as a pejorative, right? Like it's not something you want to do. If your church uh, wants people to come and hear, come and see that that's not, that's not what we're about. On the one hand, I understand what a lot of authors mean by this. They're saying in part, listen, the church can't be a group of people that just depend on some professional pastor to be the one who does all the gospel pro- proclaiming and people will, non-believers will just wander in off the streets. You know, um, I, to- I agree with that. I mean, we've said before from the very inception, the very outset of this church, the way that a non-believer normatively walks through our doors, someone who does not know Jesus and, and wants to hear this message. It's not usually just wandering in on their own, but the normative way that happens is because a trusted friend brought them. It's because a trusted friend has been speaking into their lives. They trust you. They, wanna, they want to then come and hear, right? So I, I mean, I understand that. I mean, uh, Christians should go and tell. We need to. We're called to. You know, on the other hand, I've, I've got a really hard time understanding why we throw shade at gospel invitation, given that it's the centerpiece of the New Testament um, in John's gospel throughout the scriptures. You know, the idea that we should be investing in go and tell rather than come and see. Come and see is pejorative. Go and tell is the future. is a false dichotomy that John's gospel rejects. We see an initial call to come and see from Jesus that his disciples here in chapter 1, followed by instances, one of which we'll see next week, in which his people who have come and seen for themselves begin to issue their own come and see invitations. They've come and seen, so now they go and tell others. Come and see is a required element of Christian mission. Gospel Church should be a place where every pocket of our church is a place where we could tell a non-believing friend, come and see, right? There's not just some evangelistic uh, ministry that we graft onto the side of the church, but rather it should be a place where everything we do is a place where a non-believing friend could step into and experience grace and see Christ. And that's because to tie this all together, we're saved by grace alone, but grace that saves is never alone. The gospel call on our lives transforms us to call others. 
And that's where we move from gospel invitation to gospel transformation. Verses 40 to 42, one of the two heard John speak and followed, uh, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So a quick word about the identity of these disciples. One of these two who hears John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus and follows him on that day is Andrew. It's been said that the other one is John, the author of the account. Um, but we don't know that for sure. The way the argument goes is essentially, you know, part of the reason it's postulated, he's the unnamed disciple, is because John actually doesn't mention himself in the text. That's what, one of the pieces of internal evidence that actually makes it very likely that John the disciple is the author. He does not want to draw attention to himself in the story. He's very careful. You, know, you, could, you could think of how easy it would be, and that's where I came in. You know, like how easy it would be to distract from the story by inserting yourself. So um, it's one of the reasons why tradition has it this way from the very earliest church fathers. Um, and a number of you asked a few weeks ago whether John the author was a disciple of John the Baptist. This is part of where we get that tradition. And I told you to hang on a bit because I'd address it soon, but the short answer is I'm not sure. There are three reasons I'm not sure. First, it's more than possible that John is the unnamed disciple in the text for the reasons that I just gave. It's maybe even plausible, but we're just not told. The text doesn't tell us. Second, there are there actually is a reason in the text that Andrew's name would be mentioned and not John's. You know, uh, and we see it, and, and not this other disciple, whoever he is. We see it in the rest of the verses. Andrew was Peter's brother, you know? So, um, and that's how he's known in the early church. Uh, it's interesting. One of, the, one of the two disciples that heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He had to clarify there because in the early churches, the gospel according to John is making its rounds in the first century, People don't know who Andrew is, but people know who Peter is, right? So Peter's the famous one. That's why uh, Peter's name is attached to Andrew's. Third, even if John the author was a disciple of John the Baptist, we can't sure what that means necessarily. But again, even assuming for the moment that John is the unnamed disciple, it only emphasizes the point that he's including certain details and omitting certain details like we saw in chapter 20 very intentionally. He in other words, John does not want us to get distracted by other details. He wants us to focus on the main point, which appears to be in this text, the call that Jesus gives is a fundamentally transformative call. That's where he wants our attention. The word goes out. The word does a work in the heart of believers. John the Baptist receives this from the Spirit, revealing it to him. He tells Andrew. Andrew comes and sees for himself, receives this, goes and tells Peter, this is happening by grace. You know, this isn't, this isn't a shaming, right? Um, there's a way to talk about evangelism in the church where we could look out and say, look at all these empty pews. This is an offense against the Lord. Like what, what's wrong with us as a church? We're offending God all day long, leaving. We couldn't have, seriously, people, we couldn't have thought of people to bring to church on a Sunday. What is wrong with us? Right? Like, and we keep law upon law. It's super unhealthy. It's not what Christ does in the heart of his church. 
There's a real transformation that happens in the heart of discipleship by way of God's spirit. As we saw last week, right? What happens? The spirit of God stirs up the people of God with the good news of Jesus. That's what the spirit does to the extent that we're compelled to proclaim the good news of Christ to the world around us. I'm going to show you evidence that it's not something that we should shame ourselves with, but rather an outpouring and an outworking of grace. And the Spirit then uses that gospel proclamation from God's people to stir the heart of non-believers to come to faith in Christ. People sometimes hear this claim, you know, the proclaimed word is at the center of discipleship, and it creates a misunderstanding. They say, well, I mean, come on, you can't just preach. I hear this all the time. Come on, you can't, you can't only proclaim gospel. You can't just preach. Of course that's true. Of course it's true you just can't preach. Discipleship occurs throughout the week as we apply the gospel to every area of life. And of course that gospel needs to be echoed to one another throughout the week. Like there is a real gospel work that extends well beyond Sunday mornings in the life of the church in which we proclaim the gospel to one another. We echo it back and forth to one another. I'm not saying that all we need to do is preach in order to make disciples, but rather I'm saying proclaiming the word is the first mover. You know, that doesn't just relate to preaching. If you're meeting with a non-believing friend or even a believing friend who has questions for you or is struggling with doubt or they're, you know, they're, 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 um, spiritually seeking, and you're like, oh, Jeremy, I don't know what to say. I don't know. You know what you, you can do is you can open the word to them. Read it. Allow the Spirit to work by His power. This is how He normatively works in the life of the church. Gospel, gospel proclamation, the proclamation of the word is the first mover. And saying, you know, well, you can't just only do that. It's a little like telling the farmer who's spending so much time preparing his fields for planting. You know, if you want corn in your fields, you can't just plant seeds and water. Of course he knows that, but he also knows that unless you plant and water, you'll never have corn. Because it's the first mover. It's the act that leads to all of the rest. And we see that in the text. This testimony, behold the Lamb of God. Gospel proclamation. And that gospel proclamation is what makes it possible for the gospel to confront and invite and transform. How can the gospel confront and invite and transform the heart of the believer if it's not proclaimed? So we proclaim it. This is the nature of Christian revival, and that transformation is not actually about us. Like, my argument here is not the disciples did X and so should you. That's not it. It's not about us. It's not about them or anything they've accomplished. Rather, it's a demonstration of God's grace at work within them. It shows us how our heart's desires now come into line with God's desires. And I can prove it. The idea here is that the call of Jesus is the kind of call that changes everything about us. All right? The call has to be at the center because we're unable to do. We're unable to do what's required apart from it. Okay? And so look at Peter. Look at what happens here at the end of this text. In fact, let's just, let's go back to it. Starting in verse 41, talking about Andrew, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah. Okay. Um, I was talking with Matthew Holmes earlier this week, and he was like, imagine the uh, emotion behind that statement for a first century Jew who has, along with his people, seen his people wait hundreds of years, right? We found the Messiah, okay? Which means Christ, reintroducing that word. John says his purpose in writing this is so that we could see that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is Jesus. He brought him, brought Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, son of John, 
you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. What we get wrong about this, and we get it wrong in, I think, in the synoptics too, when, when it describes it a little bit greater length what happens in Jesus renaming Peter. What we get wrong about this is we think this is about Peter primarily. See, because that's how we read our Bibles. But so many commentators are helpful on this point of saying, like, look, Peter's name change, it's not a predictive statement about what he would accomplish. You know, it's not like, it's not Jesus saying something about Peter primarily, but rather it's a declarative statement about what Jesus is going to accomplish through him by grace. And we see that. Why? Because Peter keeps failing over and over. Peter denies. Peter runs. Peter hides. But what does Jesus do? He transforms Peter's heart. It's not a predictive statement of what he would accomplish. It's a declarative statement about what Jesus accomplishes in him. It's saying something about Jesus, about his mercy, about his grace, about his work, about who he is and what he's done. And the way Jesus did this for Peter was doing for Peter what he could not do for himself. It is clear by the time we get to the end of John, Peter cannot do this by himself, you know, which is what we proclaim here at the table. Here at the table, what do we see? We see gospel proclamation, the proclaiming of Jesus' body broken and blood spilled. But that gospel confirmation, that gospel Proclamation confronts us, confronts our hearts. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, what does he say? Examine yourselves. Right? Lest you come forward to the table and receive these elements that proclaim the gospel and what Jesus did in order to save you, but you're living in unrepentant sin in which you, you couldn't care less that you're not living in line with the gospel. Examine yourself. Are you really going to come forward and partake of this thing that declares God's grace to you and treat it as though it's cheap grace, right? It confronts you. It confronts your sin. But it also invites. It invites repentance. It invites confession. It invites you to, to come and examine and confess before the Lord. If we confess our sins, he's, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It invites us to confess. It invites us into a realization then of our transformation. The fact that the gospel transforms, the fact that Jesus now goes with us, that we're in union with him, and union with Christ, the fact that he goes with us, that he walks with us, says so much about how he is at work that we might now live according to his ways and live in line with his desires. And so this meal is foundationally a, a meal that Christians must share together. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, I invite you forward to take of these elements and bring them back to your seats that we might proclaim this gospel to one another this morning.